Okay, you old school folks, get out your hard printed page of the written word. You new school folks, get out your electronic devices, your iPhones, go to your Bible app. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 down to the end. We're now taking larger chunks of Ephesians. We're moving at a really, really good clip here. Uh, Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 14 uh, was massive. We camped out there a little bit longer, but now we're moving at a greater speed. I don't know if we'll slow down. We might slow down uh, depending on the text. I genuinely, genuinely, um, in studying each week, don't necessarily know what it's going to be. So <laughs> you could say I'm just being moved along by the Spirit, okay? So here we go. Several of you have sent me the latest Justin Bieber interview. Did you see that with Zane Lowe? From uh, on Apple Music, Adina did, Brent did, my own wife did, Nancy did. Uh, Justin Bieber is a music what? Megastar. <laughs> I mean, he's not even a superstar, right? Superstars reach the moon. Megastars reach Mars. He's reached Mars. He is a megastar by any standard. Uh, phenomenal following. Uh, Girls, teenagers, I don't know, young ladies go crazy about him. He is huge. Well, it's well documented, and in the interview, it's mentioned. In 2017, he had to stop his tour uh, because he broke down. Uh, he crash-landed. Uh, he broke down physically. He broke down psychologically. Uh, he broke down relationally. Uh, when this happened uh, in the interview, he says about that time, he goes, uh, I just didn't know what the heck was going on. He didn't know why it was happening. It was just all of a sudden his soul ran into the ground. So what do you do? What, what, what did he do when that happened? What do you do when you crash land? What do you do when you break down? What do you do? So what did he do? I mean, it just, if you listen to this interview, and Brent pointed out, watch his body language. It's really fascinating because he got, he's sitting in a chair, and he's in, I don't know, what, what was he wearing? Like a, uh, yeah, like a jumpsuit, sweatpant kind of thing. And it was just from, I mean, there's no part of his skin showing, just his, his head. And he's sitting in the chair, and he is in himself. The interviewer is right in front of him. They're talking, uh, and he is in himself, and you're... You just see this protective wall around him. And Nancy was telling me, honey, still just doesn't look like he's healthy, right? But when we get to this point, what do you do? What did you do, Justin? He said, I really took a deep dive into my faith, to be honest. And he lifts his head for the first time. And now he starts to get a little animated. Right? So what did Justin learn in his deep dive into his faith? What did he learn? I mean, what, what, was, what was discovered when he started going new places he'd never gone before with God? Right? Here's what he discovered. He said, I was living in shame, punishing myself, not able to move on, he says. Now, Lo, who's the interviewer for Apple, asks, so what was the turning point for you? Justin answers, my perception of who Jesus really is changed everything. And then he goes on to talk about 
good news. Good news that was so bright. Good news that was so beautiful. Good news that was so bountiful. Good news that overflowed the borders. It was breathtaking. It was life-giving. And you could see the low. I'd really like to chase him down, too, and kind of figure out who he is, where he comes from. But even he's deeply moved. And then it, then it shifts, right? It shifts it a little bit because Lo, he, he, he knew they just went somewhere that was like powerful and it's all recorded, right? You could sense it. And again, he's now out of himself. He's now talking. He's now engaged. Lo then asked hesitantly, like almost like not wanting to ruin what was happening. He said, can I ask you a tough question before we focus on the future and how bright things look for you? Do you think if you hadn't redefined who Jesus was in your life, you would have self-destructed. Were you on a path of self-destructing? For sure. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I would have been bad. I don't know if I'd be alive. It was dark. It was really, really dark. And then he keeps going. It was really, it was really interesting. It's like you were waiting for another question, but he wasn't. It was almost like he just started plowing into the darkness. He started plowing into the valley of deep darkness. He started plowing into the place that he was coming out of. And you were just along for the ride. And when he did, and he plowed into the darkness, he revealed the heart of his darkness. So what do you think it was? This is my point. I mean, I, I don't know why everybody else might have read it for the, you know, hey, look at the good news. This is where I went. This is why I'm like, oh, my. What did he learn? What was the heart of his darkness? What was the heart of Justin Bieber's darkness? you got to ask yourself, what, what is it? Was it some self-destructive behavior? Because you could have you watched him. You could have seen the tabloids. You could have seen all the evening whatever shows that go on or whether they're now on Netflix or whatever. You, you could have seen it. It was well-documented, his self-destructive. So was his darkness, the heart of his darkness, his self-destructive behavior? Was it some paralyzing piece of mental illness? Was it uh, some traumatizing relational pain? All of these things are going on. Everybody was talking about this stuff. High to low, everybody. Quote, I was striving for God's love. I was striving for his acceptance and his approval. I was striving for the approval of others. It's time to redefine Jesus in your life and in your relationships. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, <clears throat> but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together and a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. <coughs> Please be seated, y'all. <clears throat> so, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you grant, would you grant clarity to the mind, realness to the heart? Lord, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts even now by the power of your Spirit as Paul prayed 2,000 years ago and as as you have had us pray, your church pray for 2,000 years, grant us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge in you, of you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, y'all, so look at verse 11 and 12. That's a pretty deeply disturbing verse, is it not? I mean, Paul is like itemizing a list of the very disturbing words. It's like he has this check-off list of a bad to-do list, doesn't he? I mean, look at him. He goes up and he goes, uncircumcision check right now uncircumcision doesn't speak to us in our culture but in that culture it spoke huge it spoke volumes because uncircumcision if you were uncircumcised if you were part of an uncircumcised community if you were gentiles and you're uncircumcised it means that you were unacceptable you were rejected so he's going through this list uncircumcised check remember you were unacceptable you were rejected then he goes to the next one separated from christ check Remember, you were unacceptable. You were rejected. Then he goes down and says, alienated from belonging to Israel. Another code for being unacceptable, being uh, rejected. Check. Then you go strangers. What's a stranger? A stranger is an outsider. A stranger is the invisible man. A stranger is someone who's unwanted, unlooked, overlooked, the forgotten. Remember, you were unacceptable. You were rejected. Rejected. Then he drops down to no hope. Check. Without God in the world. Check. Remember, you were unacceptable. You were rejected. Now, for those of you I know, because I know you, there are many of you that have been waiting for me to finally tell you what to do. 
Please tell me what to do, Jeff. You've been waiting for Paul to give an imperative, an exhortation, a command to actually declare a practical application that you can hang on to, that you can grab and you can put in your pocket and you can take into your week and take into your relationships. Well, here it is. This is the very first command in all the book of Ephesians. And the command is, remember, you're unacceptable. Remember, you were rejected. Now, how's that for a practical application? Holy cow. Why is Paul doing this? Here's the answer. Because acceptance is fundamentally human. Because acceptance is fundamentally at the root of who you are. And it explains who you are. And it explains your relationships. Without acceptance, we are less than human. Without acceptance, we are, in the words of Justin Bieber, it would be bad. I don't know if I'd be alive. It was dark. Very dark. The power of acceptance is felt in its absence. The power of acceptance is felt in what? Rejection. Oh, yeah, you know, when the stupid kid on the playground calls you ugly names, you feel the power of acceptance, but you feel it in its absence. You feel it in rejection. When the breakup happens, when you don't get the call back from your date, you feel the power of acceptance, but you feel it in its absence. You feel it in rejection when you don't get tenure when the sorority doesn't give you the bid when you hear the accusations in your head when you have that recent weight gain when you experience the judgment of others when you experience your parents neglect when you experience relational hurts you feel the power of acceptance in its absence in rejection. Rejection triggers your fundamental need for acceptance. Justin Holcomb says it also triggers a great fear and a great anxiety in our life. Why? Well, here's what he says. Because sometimes rejection is deserved, sometimes it's not. But all rejection in some form or another feels deserved. And all of life in the fear of rejection can make paralytics of us all. In other words, there is a sense once you feel it like it's deserved and it's not. But somehow, somehow though, all of it ultimately in some form feels deserved. And when that happens, it makes you a paralytic. Look at verse 11 and verse 12 again. What Paul is saying is that the ultimate reason he's given you in 11 and 12, that itemized bad laundry list. He's given us an itemized list of why all the rejection in some form or another feels deserved because all of us come into the world, he says, uncircumcised. All of us come into the world separated from Christ. All of us come into the world alienated and strangers. All of us come into the world without hope and without God in this world. In other words, deep down in all of our bones, deep down right now, 
You know. I don't have to tell you. You know it. You feel it. You might be able to explain it, but you certainly feel it. It certainly works its way into your thinking and feeling. It certainly wrecks you. It certainly touches your relationships. Deep down in your bones, you know, and I know, I'm unacceptable. I'm rejected. Now watch what Paul does. He goes from verse 11 and 12 where he's talking about the power of acceptance in our life personally. And then he moves to the power of acceptance in our lives relationally. Do you see how he does that? It's a slight move. It's really smooth, but he's moving into where you think he's just talking about you as an individual, you about your personal life and the power of acceptance and being rejected and being unacceptable. And then he shifts in 14 through 21. He starts moving into relational dynamics. He starts moving into how we relate to each other, particularly the Jews and the Gentiles. But now think about this. He's now moving into relational conflict. Think about it this way. When you and I have relational conflicts, when we see relational conflicts, we experience relational conflicts, we tend to think that they're caused ultimately by right and wrong. You know? Right and wrong. It's usually I'm right, you're wrong. That's usually how our relational conflicts work. Someone's right, someone's wrong. That's how we think. That's how we feel. Uh, I have the right view. I have the right truth. I have the right beliefs. I have the right uh, interpretation of reality. I see things rightly. I see I have a better perspective than you. You don't have that perspective. That's usually how it goes. Or we say something like, I have the right behavior. I have the right morals. I have the right character. I have the right way to do marriage. I have the right way to do parenting. I have the right way to bake bread. I have the right way to prepare for a zombie apocalypse. You don't. Do you see how this works? I have the right personality. I have the right gender. I have the right race. I have the right culture. I have the right political views. You don't, right? That's one way we think, oh yeah, this is how we get in relational conflicts. I'm right, you're wrong. Another way is we do this. We really don't know what's going on, and we just think it's just complete, unexplainable phenomenon, right? So we do things like this. I'm, you know, it's, I'm just a helpless victim, or they're just a helpless victim of psychological impulses. You know, we say things like, well, it's, it's just some deep wound I carry. Well, what's the wound? I don't know, but it's deep. We say things like, well, it's just my parents' fault. Well, what did your parents do? I don't know. It's just their fault. We say things like, well, it's because I'm a Capricorn. The stars align that way, and it's just how I kind of work. Or we say things like, I am a J-E-R-K on the Myers-Briggs personality test. Right? Now, I want you to think about this because I put a lot of thought and creativity into this. The J-E-R-K personality on the mic. Did you get it? Okay, good. Or I'm all nine Enneagram personality types. This is my favorite. I've actually decided, you know what, I'm going to create a new Enneagram. I'm going to say there is an all nine Enneagram put into one person. I'm going to call it the Legion personality type. We'll call it number 10, Right? Now, listen, I understand our personality differences. Please, I'm not saying I understand that stuff's helpful. Please, but sometimes we just put so much hope in that stuff. So I kind of just go metaphorical on us every once in a while. Or we say things like, well, I'm Italian, right? And I'm an engineer. Double whammy, right? Paul says this. We say relational struggles are caused by, I'm right, you're wrong. Or some unexplicable, unexplained, mysterious phenomenon going on, right? That none of us really know about except 
supposedly these experts, whoever these experts are, and they like to tell us what it is. Paul says, no, you know, all your relational, ultimately the cause of all your relational conflicts, all your relational wreckage is the power of acceptance. In its absence. In rejection. Once you look at verse 14, the dividing wall of hostility, do you see it? You know we got to go in there. Everybody's like, gosh, what is this about? I did the same thing. I'm like, oh, man, I guess i got to figure this thing out. Um, whatever it means, the dividing wall of hostility, there's enough there to know there's some relational conflict going on, right? <laughs> there is a wall. There's a divide. It's a dividing wall, and it's hostile. So there's str relational struggles going on. Now, the relational struggles going on, the relational conflict, the relational harm, it could be unintentional. It could be just miscommunication. It could be just misunderstandings. It could be just the legit differences, you know, male-female differences, uh, personality differences. Those, that stuff is legit, just unintentional harm. But there's also intentional conflict, intentional harm, like anger and abuse and racism, like uh, bitterness and unforgiveness, like withholding relationship from somebody, like withholding love and acceptance like refusing to reconcile, refusing to own up to your contribution in a relational mess, right? I want you to look at verse 15. You see that law of commandments expressed in ordinances? So the question is, what is the ultimate cause of relational conflict? Paul's answer is the law. And you're like, what? Okay, so now that was then, right? Okay, so I guess... You know, the Gentiles and the Jews had something going on about the law. And when you think of the law in the Bible, you, you initially think of Moses' law. You think of, think Ten Commandments and then add circumcision. So that was a barrier, and that created hostility. It was a dividing wall of hostility. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably what was going on with them. But Paul's actually, the Bible actually goes even bigger than that. The Bible actually goes and says the law is not only the Ten Commandments. So you could call it the capital L law, the capital L law. Ten Commandments plus circumcision. But there is... A law as a principle that's embedded in your life, it's embedded in your heart, it's embedded in your relationships, it's embedded in the spiritual fabric of the universe. <laughs> Luther says, you and I, in our default mode, have a law embedded in us. It's woven into our DNA. And this law is the little l laws of life, like the law of thinness that crushes everybody. Like, the, here's the law that gets me, the law of productivity that crushes me. Or how about the law of capability? I said this earlier, I mean, that the, poor, the poor soul that only God gives one gift to, but it's just one gift. I mean, today you have to be a multitasker. Today you have to be everything. Today you have to be so capable, so competent on every field, on every knowledge, on every area of life, or you're a loser. So think about, you know, one child with one skill or one child with one gift. No wonder everybody feels like a loser today, right? Or how about the law of grades? There are laws that go into your grades. There are laws that go into parental approval. There are laws that are in the home. There are laws at school. There are laws by coaches. 
And what is this? Because Paul is saying that the ultimate cause of relational conflict, the wall, dividing wall of hostility is the law, whether it's the Ten Commandments and circumcision or it's all the endless little laws of life that are everywhere because that's the way the world is, because that's what's been embedded into us from the very beginning. Here's the answer. Whatever the law, little l laws, capital L law, the point of the law is same. Acceptance is achieved. Acceptance is earned. Acceptance is performed for. Acceptance is worked for. Acceptance is self-generated. Acceptance is self-activated. I must produce my acceptance. And when that happens, whatever you decide is going to be your achieved acceptance, that law becomes a dividing wall of hostility between you and other people. What do you mean, Jeff? Well, it kind of goes like this. Let's say it this way. If acceptance is achieved by the law of race, so you have race, and race achieves your acceptance, that's a law, a law of achieved acceptance, and let's call it the law of race. If the law of race is how you achieve acceptance, those who are not in your race are unacceptable. They're rejected. Let's go one that's, I'm not even going to talk about you. Let's just talk about me, okay? I have the law of hard work, self-discipline, get her done, don't quit. So that law crushes me, right? But let's say, let's just get at, let's just not talk about me today, okay? Let's talk about you. Let's talk about us. Relationships. So here's my law. I don't know it. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But this law is now a dividing wall of hostility between me and other people. Well, who, Jeff? Well, who's not hardworking? Who's not self-disciplined? Who quits? You're a loser. You're unacceptable. You're rejected. This happens on the athletic field. This happens in the classroom. This happens at government levels. This happens in the home. This kills your kids. If acceptance is achieved by the law of obeying the rules of the home, obeying the laws of the rule at school. In other words, teachers only accept kids when they obey the rules at school. Coaches only accept kids when they obey the rules of the athletic field. Parents only accept their kids, they obey the rules in the home. Kids, real, kids realize really, really quickly acceptance is conditional. Dividing walls of hostility are erected in the house, in the home, in the community at school, on the athletic field. And then what happens? Well, what happens is this. The kid's going to make a choice. The kid is either going to be a slave and try to please the law, or they're going to rebel against it. The crazy thing is, is that those that strive to please it, we actually think are the good kids. When maybe the more courageous are the ones rebelling. Now, some of you, I know this is happening, you're saying, okay, so then if you take that law away, the law of achievement, of achieved acceptance, 
how do you live? How do you discipline kids? How do you relate as a teacher? That should be the exact question we should be asking right now. I want to say if you are thinking that, you are dead on. Because you're wanting to know, how now do I live? Because I don't even know what a world looks like outside of the law. A dividing wall of hostility. I don't know what parenting looks like outside of that. I don't know how to relate to my wife outside of that. I don't know how to do church outside of that. I don't know how to relate to my teachers or be a teacher outside of that. It's time to redefine Jesus in our life and our relationships, right? So how do we do that? Well, at UMass, I went to UMass, University of Massachusetts. It sits not between mountains, but just a, a two hills, really. But everybody called them a mountain. I could not figure that out. But they were big hills, and it sat in what's called the Pioneer Valley. So the wind would come whooping down, and they're so cold that in January, they close the school down, and they only have a J-term. You take one class. Let's say you come to visit me. It's in November, and the wind is so big. There are, it, in my dorm area, there were two 26-story dorms that were like side by side to each other. In the wind days, you, could, you would find kids all the time almost trying to like fly when it was really, really windy, the wind could hold you up. You could go parallel and take your feet off the ground. That's how windy it was in the cold. So you come to visit me in November, right? We're in November, and, we're, and this pond is between me and the classes. And I say, hey, it's cold. Let's, it'll cut off half the time if we walk across the pond on the ice. And I say, let's walk across the ice. Yeah, let's do it. We walk across. We fall through, Right? It's not that deep, but we're like soaked from here down, and the walk home is miserable. You get sick, I don't. But then let's say you come to visit me in January, because I get to tell the story, right? You come to visit me in January. It's a whole different time now. Now, when we went across, let's just go back to, to November. Did we have faith? Oh, we had all the faith in the world that ice would hold us up. Did the ice hold us up because we had all the faith in the world? No, the ice was, something was wrong with the ice. It wasn't thick. But we had faith, man. We really believed. And we acted on it and fell through the ice. January, we come back and I say, hey, let's cut across the pond. Let's go cut across the ice. What do you think? And we're both like, I don't know. Because we both have zero faith, no faith, not a faith, nit faith, right? So what do we do? Well, there's this sharp stick on the side. So I take out the sharp stick. We start chipping away at the ice. We go down six inches. Hmm. We go down a foot. Hmm. Two feet. Three feet. Four feet. There's only one foot of water at the bottom of the pond. What happens? What happens as we start chipping away at the ice? What happens? faith is strengthened. Your faith is increased. We had all the faith in the world, but the ice wasn't worthy. We have no faith, but the ice is thick. The ice is worthy. So what changes you? What changes me? What changes relationships? Chip away at the ice. You start chipping away at Jesus and you start finding out how thick he is and it starts redefining your view of Jesus and all of a sudden you do the deep dive just like Justin Bieber and it's a game changer 
Here's what we do. We think, we think that you get faith by talking about faith. And you know what happens? The more we talk about faith, it's fascinating. If you want your kids to have faith, if you start talking about faith to your kid, they're going to have less faith. You're going to watch their faith start leaving right before your eyes. If they had any, it's going to go away. We think talking about faith is going to give you faith. It's not talking about faith that gives you faith. It's talking about Jesus that gives you faith. Chipping away at how thick he is, how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, the good news of what he's accomplished, all of a sudden you start resting in him, you start relying upon him, and you start rejoicing in him. It's a game changer. It changes everything. Redefine Jesus in your life. So how do we do that? Well, that's how we do it. You've got to chip away at it. You've got to actually chip away at him. You've got to figure out who he is. Because most of us, and this is what I think Bieber found out, Justin found out, and I think that, I think the interviewer is starting to find out. Most of us think we're rejecting God and rejecting Christianity. If you're a skeptic, if you're the rebellious kind, and I know you're out there, you think you're rejecting God, you think you're rejecting Christianity, let me be the first to tell you you're not. You're not rejecting the real God, and you're not rejecting real Christianity. You're probably rejecting religion and something else. You're probably rejecting the law is what you're rejecting. Look at verse 14. He himself is our peace. This is where acceptance ends. This is where the struggle for your acceptance ends. The struggle for you and me, the struggle for our relationships ends in verse 14. Everything's moving to verse 14. It ends at Jesus. So Jesus is the power of our acceptance. That's what it says. He is our peace. So he's our acceptance. He's your peace. He's the power of your acceptance. This means there is no more rejection. It's in him. So how can this be, you say, right? I mean, that's the next. How can this be? How can he be our acceptance? How can he be our rejection? Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. How? How is he our peace? Because he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? In his flesh. In other words, in his body, on the cross, when he's dying, he is tearing down the walls of hostility. He's crushing and fulfilling all the requirements of the law. He's doing the work of acceptance. He's obliterating rejection by being rejected. In other words, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was divided. Jesus was torn down. Jesus took the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. How practical is this? It's unbelievably practical. What are you supposed to do personally in your relationships? Here's what you're supposed to do. Simply accept the fact that you're accepted. That you don't achieve it. That your kids don't achieve it for you. That a school teacher doesn't achieve your acceptance for you. A coach doesn't achieve your acceptance for you. Jesus achieved your acceptance. Jesus is your acceptance. And so when you get rejected, because you will, whether real or imagined, or you fear rejection, you can sense yourself in certain situations. When you, anxiety is, it's a fear of rejection. 
Condemnation, accusation, blame, people, performance, whatever it is. When that happens, Jesus is your rejection. Jesus is your acceptance when you have this inescapable fundamental drive to be acceptance. You're my acceptance. And then you face situations where you are threatened with rejection. You're my rejection. There's no more rejection. This is a game changer. This parts the Red Sea. This is the exodus out of slavery. 